Let's look at Ephesians 1, 1 through 11 together. Actually, we're going to look at Ephesians 1, 1 and 2. That's where we'll start. If you have a handout, uh, go ahead and get that out and get ready to take some notes and follow along. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1 says, The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. That's how Ecclesiastes starts. Some translations say, instead of futility, use the word meaningless. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. This is how the author of Ecclesiastes chooses to start his book. It's all futility. Everything is futile, absolutely futile. Because the Bible exists to teach us about how to relate to God who's our creator, most of us probably initially come to the Bible expecting direct, straightforward communication. The type of communication where we can see important truths that are plainly stated in ways that don't leave any doubt to their meaning. We expect doctrine. We expect ideas and facts presented in an orderly and direct fashion. Indeed, sometimes that's exactly what we get in the Bible. I liked Ephesians. I liked teaching Ephesians because that's what we got. We got straightforward teaching, clear doctrinal teaching about God and about humanity and about how we ought to live. That's not what we'll find in Ecclesiastes. There are examples of this all throughout Scripture. We see in Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth. That's pretty straightforward. That's a truth that is being taught directly. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That's, that's direct, that's straightforward, that teaches us something that we need to know about God. And that's perhaps, if you've not explored the Bible much, what you think the whole book is going to be. But more often than not, God reveals himself to us in ways that are far less obvious and far less direct but nonetheless far more intriguing and memorable. And that's what we'll find in Ecclesiastes. It's important to understand the complexity of the Bible. Before we look too closely at these verses, I want to talk a little bit about the nature of the Bible and, and how we are to read it. There's, there's complexity to this book. It's actually 66 different books that we've put together in one book. And because of that, there are a variety of forms of writing and teaching employed God uses different human authors who communicate in very different ways, using different genres, even different languages, to communicate his truth. Because of this, reading the Bible might be similar to driving a car. If you know how to operate the gas pedal and the steering wheel, and you jump in a car with that limited knowledge, you're off to a pretty good start. But I think we can all imagine if that's all you know how to do is press the gas, let off the gas, turn the steering wheel, you're headed for some danger. There's a lot more that you need to know about driving a car. You need to know how to operate the brakes. You need to know how the transmission works. You need to understand what the headlights are supposed to do. Turn signals. Some of you never learned how to use turn signals. <laughs> it's real simple. You just up or down, and it tells everybody else which way you're going. Wipers. This time of year, it's important to know how to operate the defrost. These are things that you need to know. You'll need to understand the rules of the road. You'll need to understand how to, to read road signs, what to do at an intersection or at a stoplight. You want to know what to expect from other drivers and agree to comply to their expectations of you. It's important to understand how rain, snow, and ice will impact your ability to drive safely. You want to understand how to maintain your vehicle. See, there's a lot to know about driving beyond how to work the gas pedal and the steering wheel, isn't there? None of which is beyond your ability to learn and implement. In fact, I think that we all learn those things rather effortlessly because we have sufficient motivation. We want to drive. And so we learn how to operate our vehicles. We learn how to drive, hopefully, safely. And it's really, you know, something that all of us sort of, most of us naturally learned how to do. Some of us maybe haven't had that opportunity yet. Well, the same is true of reading the Bible. Most of us know how to read. 
So we pick up and read. That's like understanding the gas and the steering wheel. Most of us know how to read, so we pick up the Bible and we, we read. But that's a lot just like only having the basics of your vehicle. There's a lot more that you need to know if you're going to read effectively, that you're going to read in the proper way. First time I ever got on a dirt bike. I have an older brother, and uh, he liked, um, well, I think he just took a lot of pleasure in my pain throughout life. <laughs> uh, so uh, he was the first one to teach me how to ride a dirt bike, and I think he did that as a joke. He pretty, I'm pretty sure he knew how it would turn out. Uh, he, he gave me a quick rundown of the different pieces of operating the dirt bike, but really all I knew was the throttle. And so I got on his 250cc uh, dirt bike, and having a very um, novice understanding of how to operate this vehicle, I hit the throttle. Well, one of the things, especially when you're dealing with 250 cc's, one of the things uh, that's difficult to sort of figure out is that when the throttle is operated by your hand, right? And so when you, when you start to panic and you start to lean backwards, the throttle tends to go with you. And you very quickly end up in a situation where the bike is going somewhere that you're not going with it anymore. And that's exactly what happened. I jump on this dirt bike, 250 cc's, I hit the throttle a little bit, let out the clutch, boom, the bike takes off and I don't. I'm flat on my back. <laughs> my first experience reading the Bible was about the same way. I knew how to read, so I picked up reading the Bible, and I was like, I'll just start in the beginning. That's where we start books, right? So I started in Genesis. I was like, man, Genesis is pretty dope. I like Genesis. I'm, God created all this stuff, and Adam and Eve, and there's all these characters that are coming into the story. I get into Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible, and I'm reading through Exodus. I'm like, I like this, man. You got Moses. You got the ten plagues that, that God uses to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And then they get out of Egypt, and they're out in the wilderness. He gives them the Ten Commandments. I'm like, this is pretty wild stuff, man. Like, God's doing some crazy things. And then for about 20 chapters in the second half of Exodus, it's like the dimensions of the tabernacle and like all of these things. I was like, man, I was, I was like flat on my back, you know. I was like, what is happening? And I realized very quickly I didn't know how to read the Bible. Just because I knew how to read didn't mean I had all of the knowledge and all of the information and all of the tools that we need to read effectively, Ecclesiastes is one of those books where if we don't have the right tools, if we don't have the right skills, if we don't put in the, the, the proper, proper effort, we're going to read this and go, man, what's up with this book? Meaningless, meaningless, absolute futility. Everything is futile. Where is this going? What is the purpose of all of this? It's a cynical book. It's a book that presents a lot more questions than it gives answers. It's a book that might leave us scratching our heads, looking for, for nuggets of wisdom, and having a difficult time finding where they are at. So we need to learn how to read. That's what we need to do. We need to learn how to read the Bible. If you want to read a book like Ecclesiastes, you're going to have to become a skilled reader. And I'm not expecting, uh, you know... Uh, we're going to make this very digestible. That's my job. My job is to make this digestible for you on Sunday mornings. But in the process, I hope that, that we'll give you some tools that will develop your skills, that will help you learn how to read properly and to understand the Bible in, in all of its beauty and in the way that God has written it. The first issue when we come to Ecclesiastes is the issue of genre. This book falls into the category of what's often called wisdom books or sometimes poetical books. Wisdom books have their own rules of interpretation. Just think about the different types of things that you read. You, you, we do this unknowingly. We, we bring with us into every context of reading certain rules of interpretation. If you're, if you're reading an article on ESPN... You understand this is sports journalism. In the sports journalism, you're looking for certain things, and, and you read through a certain lens. Uh, if, if you read, for instance, a text from your spouse instructing you of things that you need to stop at the store and get, there's different rules of interpretation. Uh, this is not opinion, you understand. These are things, these are imperatives. These are commands that you must obey. We, we, when we read poetry, we expect artistic language. We, we expect, we're not, it's not so much, a, it's, it's not so much about black and white in poetry, it's about beauty, it's about expression, it's about mystery. And so we come to this book and it's, it's categorized as one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. 
we need to bring with it the proper rules for interpretation. When we read wisdom books, we're not looking for straightforward, easy-to-understand truth necessarily. It's not really the, the way that we ought to read this book. It's the main thing, rather the idea that we want to come to is that we want to reflect or to look at things from another perspective. We want to be challenged in the way we think about things. Wisdom books aren't necessarily about black and white or about what is always true everywhere. These writings wrestle with subject, subjects that involve lots of mystery Ecclesiastes in particular brings up questions and issues that it doesn't always provide satisfactory answers for. That's one of the most frustrating things about this book is that it brings up these ideas and we're like, this is the Bible. It's supposed to tell us, uh, it's supposed to give us the answers to life. And this book in particular seems to bring up more questions than it gives us answers. It's a deep book. It's a challenging book. And it's extremely memorable. And as I was thinking about that, as I began to study Ecclesiastes last fall, I did it because I was part of a workshop, a preaching workshop, um, where we were preaching, we were taking turns uh, preparing how we would preach through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's just a workshop uh, that that I participate in every couple years or so to help sharpen my my study skills and my, my preaching ability. And as I was reading through it, I was like, boy... I ain't never preaching this book. <laughs> like I don't, I don't want to preach Ecclesiastes. It's, it's dirty. It's, it's, it's tough. It's difficult. My, that was my, my initial reaction. It's too difficult. It's too messy. But as I studied, I was, I was wowed by some of the lessons. My comment at the end of that workshop to, to one of the instructors was that Ecclesiastes doesn't really provide a lot of low-hanging fruit. But if you're willing to climb the tree... There are some valuable lessons there. But even still, I thought, I'm not preaching it. I don't want to do it. There's, it's, it's too much work. The nuggets are too far, too, too few and too far in between. Then as time passed, the things I gleaned from that study stuck with me. Over the weeks and last couple of months, I realized that there were some really important things about life in this book. And they stuck with me because they were presented in such a challenging and memorable way. And so that's my expectation as we go into this book together. That God, in his incredible wisdom, in the way he presents to us truth, is going to challenge us. He's going to, he's going to cause us to dig deep. And in the process, he's going to teach us memorable and meaningful truth. This book starts out with the idea of futility. Meaningless. And so we titled this series, This Not Meaningless, But Meaningful Life. And that is the picture that I hope to present to you from Ecclesiastes. There's a temptation, I think, for Christians uh, with any Old Testament book to jump too quickly to the New Testament. Because the Old Testament really sets us up for the New Testament, but it doesn't necessarily provide the hope and the comfort and, and the truth that we seek and that we find in the New Testament. And so there's a temptation to go too quickly from the Old Testament to the New. I, I want to try to find that balance. And I know that, I, that this will be a struggle throughout this series. I want to try to find that balance of, of staying in the Old. Staying in what God said in this book before we jump too quickly about the answers that he provides in the New Testament. And so I'll seek to strike that balance as best as I can. This is how I want to begin. The first fill in the blanks that you see on your handout. Ecclesiastes is an invitation into the deep and mysterious quest for the true meaning of life. It's an invitation into the deep and mysterious quest for the true meaning of life. On the surface, it may appear to be nothing more than a cynic's manifesto. Dig deeper and you'll discover great and satisfying truths about life on earth. But we'll have to dig deep. They won't be there on the surface. One of the commentators that I was reading as I studied and prepared for today said this. He said, it is best to be frank from the outset. Ecclesiastes is a difficult book. 
It is written in a form of Hebrew different from much of the remainder of the Old Testament, and it regularly challenges the reader of the original as to the grammar and syntax. The interpretation even of words that occur frequently in the book is often unclear and a matter of dispute, partly because there is frequent wordplay in the course of the argument. The argument itself is complex, sometimes puzzling, and has often provoked the charge of inconsistency or outright self-contradiction. In the context of the Old Testament, there is nothing here of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the exodus of God's special dealings with Israel in the Promised Land, or of prophetic hope in a great future. Instead, we find ourselves apparently reading about the meaninglessness of, of life and the certainty of death in a universe in which God is certainly present but is distant and somewhat uninvolved. When considered in the context of the New Testament, the dissonance between Ecclesiastes and its scriptural context seems even greater. For if there is one thing that we do not find in this book, it is the joy of resurrection. Perhaps this is one reason why Ecclesiastes is seldom read or preached in modern churches. He goes on to say, Another concern is its perceived hedonistic tone, found in the frequent advice to eat and drink and find satisfaction, connected with this an allegorical heretical tendency insofar as the book questions, for example, whether there is any real profit to, me, to be made from life God has created and claims that there is nothing better than a life of eating, drinking, and enjoyment. What is to be done with Ecclesiastes, he concludes? It is to be struggled with as an intrinsic part of Scripture. It is to be wrestled with in terms of its original meaning and with all its unusual grammar and syntax and with all its clever word plays as we seek to understand its parts in terms of the whole and to come to some understanding of its contradictions and heresies and licentiousness. It is to be grappled with in its connectedness or not with the remainder of the Old Testament and in its advocacy of a joy that is not yet fully biblical resurrection joy. So there it is. That's the challenge in front of us. It's a difficult book. It's one that we must approach with some resolve and some openness. It's a book that we should struggle with. You must, in order to get what I hope you will get out of this series, you must for yourself read this book. In fact, I would invite all of you to take the challenge this week before we come back together next week to read the whole book, all 12 chapters. It won't take long, maybe 20 minutes. Sit down and read through Ecclesiastes from beginning to end. Maybe take note of things that stand out to you. Take note of how it leaves you feeling. Where is the hope? Where is the despair? What do you find strikes you as you read this book? Okay, let's read. All of that by way of introduction, let's jump in and read. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes 1. I want to read the whole chapter this morning, um, but we'll break it into two parts so that we can discuss it a little bit, uh, and I won't take a whole lot of time. Um, that's probably half my time already gone, so I'll honor that, and um, we'll read the first chapter and draw out a couple of things that I think are significant for moving forward. Looking at verse 1, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, Absolute futility, says the teacher. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises. Gusting to the south, turning to the north. Turning, turning goes the wind. And the wind returns in its cycles. All the streams flow to the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are wearisome, more than anyone can say. The eye is not satisfied by seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Can one say about anything, look, this is new? It has already existed in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of those who came before and of those who will come after. There will also be no remembrance by those who follow. 
The next thing you see on your handout is simply this. Life is full of things that don't satisfy or last and mean very little in the end. If you came today expecting to hear a Joel Osteen-like sermon, (laughs) this is not the one. Life is full of things that don't satisfy or last. That's just a reality. And that don't mean that mean very little in the end. That is the observation of Ecclesiastes here in the verse eleven verses. There's there's a word the word in verses one and two that's translated here in our translation as futility, and that as I mentioned in other translations is translated as meaningless. Is a, is a Hebrew word called hevel. It's a difficult word to translate. That's why there's quite a disparity amongst the translations on how to translate this. What is Hevel? Well, I think that the CSB, which is what we read from uh, here on Sundays, gets it a little bit better in my limited ability to study the word. Meaningless is not quite the essence of Hevel. Futility, on the other hand, seems to capture it. Hevel is, is something that just does not last. It does not satisfy That doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. That doesn't mean that it doesn't provide temporary satisfaction. What the author seems to communicate is that it just doesn't stay long enough. Hevel, it's futile. It seemed to satisfy for a while and then I woke up the next day and it was gone. Someone used the idea of grasping at smoke. It's really there. It's a real thing. You just, you just can't hold on to it. You, you, can't, you can't maintain it. You can't keep it where it was. It's futile. And boy, isn't life full of things that are hevel? They don't last. They don't satisfy in the long run. They don't sustain us forever. Life itself is hevel. Life is too frail, it's too fragile, it's too brief, it's too unsatisfying. If you haven't come to this conclusion yet, you soon will. The author of Ecclesiastes is not the first nor the last to come to this conclusion. We work and we labor, and we toil, and we strive. And in the end, what do we get? It's all hevel. You do the laundry. You put it in these nice little stacks. You put it back in the kids' drawers, and it comes back to you the next day, dirty and needing done again. You cook a wonderful meal. And then six hours later, they all want fed again. Are you relating to, you, you, there's, it's hevel, it doesn't last. Life is this vicious cycle of things that need done again and again and don't seem to get us anywhere. I watched, uh, I'm named after my grandfather, I'm actually Fred III. And of, throughout my life, it's, I've considered it a great honor to bear the name of, of two really great men in my life, my grandfather and, and my dad. And um, my grandfather is not alive anymore, but his life never, never stops speaking to me. Uh, the, just the consistency and the faithfulness with which he did his duties on earth. And the way he lived his life, mostly as far as I could tell, I mean, he was no perfect man. I don't have any um, misunderstandings about that, I don't think. But in terms of men, uh, just an incredibly unselfish man, a man who just uh, lived not for himself but for the people around him. Um, Something I I wouldn't say I've ever really been able to emulate in any true way, Um, but I have vivid memories of him. He worked hard. He worked um, from the time he was a teenager until he was into his 70s and, and eventually uh, became so, so physically weak that he couldn't work anymore. 
Uh, he worked at a tire shop where he would change tires for people. And he worked faithfully every day, six days a week, same schedule for 60 years almost. And I, I have these vivid memories of him coming home um, from that physical labor and, and, you know, maybe sitting down for a minute to have dinner and then getting back up to work on his home. And I, I just have these, these pictures of how he maintained his home. He had, he, there were, there were things, without trying to go into a lot of detail, there, was, there were things that he had to maintain regularly. And one of the things I remember is he had this, along his driveway, there was this retaining wall um, not made like we make retaining walls today, but made out of just stones that were really cemented together. And uh, there was so much, so much ground on that that it was constantly moving over the years. And he had to constantly maintain it. And he, I just remember him going out there and he would put more, more concrete. He would just patch all the cracks. And he, just, he spent hours and hours of his life maintaining this wall. And that's the kind, of, the kind of faithfulness that I think of when I think of my grandfather. He just did his duty. And he never complained. And he was always working hard. And I have so many images of that in my head. And then I remember in, I remember, uh, in the year or two after he passed. And there was no one to maintain all of these things. I saw how quickly they all, all of his labor was being undone. Being undone by the cruel and unrelenting nature of time. And it caused me to reflect on my own life. What am I doing that will last? We can do a lot of things. We must do a lot of things. I don't, I don't think that what he did was, was meaningless. I don't think that what he did was inappropriate. It was admirable. But it was hevel. It didn't last. He did a lot of that. I want to make sure I'm not painting the wrong picture about my grandfather. He did a lot of things that lasted. But I, I have this clear picture in my mind of how many things that he did that did not last. Absolute futility, the teacher says. Absolute futility. Everything is futile. What does a person gain for all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, panting. It returns to the place where it rises, gusting to the south, turning to the north, turning, turning, goes the wind, and the wind returns in its cycle. This is what... The author of Ecclesiastes is trying to convey to us. What do we gain for all of this? What does it matter that we were here? What was the purpose of our lives? So much of what we spent our time doing here on earth vanishes when we're gone. It's heaven. It doesn't last. He goes on to say, let's look at verses 12 through 18. This will... This will get us to the end of the chapter. He goes on to say, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I want to come back to that verse in a minute. I applied my mind to examine, explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. I have seen all things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile. That's that word hevel again, which I think occurs... I didn't write it down. I think 23-ish times in this book. I found everything to be futile, a pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who were over Jerusalem before me. And my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that this too is a pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow. As knowledge increases, grief increases. There's the issue of authorship here. You've heard me say a couple times already, the author of Ecclesiastes. We're not told who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. You've probably heard, if you've ever studied this book before, many believe Solomon wrote it. There's certainly some evidence of that. He starts the book in, in verse 1. He says, the words of the teacher 
son of David, king of it in, in Jerusalem. In fact, this is, there, there seems to be two authors. There seems to be somewhat of a narrator here. Somebody who's compiled the words of someone else. Uh, the narrator we know absolutely nothing about. The words of the one who is being compiled here, uh, we know a little bit about. He says, son of David, king in, in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I said I wanted to come back to it. I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. Son of David, um, David was uh, the second king over Jerusalem. There was Saul, the first king over Israel, I should say, the first king over Israel, David being the second, his son Solomon being the third. After Solomon, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, and there were a whole bunch of kings over those, various, uh, over those two kingdoms. So these are things, uh, we know he was a king over Jerusalem. That was one of the two kingdoms after the split. This could be before or after the division. Um, son of David does not certainly mean that he was the son of David, meaning he was his biological son. Son of David is used in a lot of different ways in the Old Testament, but it certainly could mean that he was the son of David, that he was Solomon. There's a lot in the book to indicate that Solomon had to have been the author. Solomon was known for his wisdom. He was known for compiling wisdom of people from other nations. This is what he was known for, like no other king. Nonetheless, the Bible does not tell us that this is Solomon. There are some arguments against Solomon. Excuse me. Uh, there are some things that might indicate uh, that Solomon didn't write this, and we, we'd be getting into the weeds a bit. I'm going to maintain that we don't know the author. Some have just come out and concluded, no, nah, it has to be Solomon. I relate to that. I understand that. I, there's a lot here that I just go, come on, it's Solomon. Um, but since the Bible doesn't tell us and there's, some, there's really no need to assign it to Solomon or to any other author, I think everything in the book stays the same. Um, so that's my little blurb on authorship. I'm not going to say Solomon's the author. I don't believe that that's conclusive, but I'm not against it either. If you say Solomon's the author, I'll be like, yeah, probably. <laughs> what we do know is that God, as with every book of the Bible, is the true author. That he worked through human authors to inspire the words of this text. And as we've already mentioned in, uh, quite a bit, he does it in a very unique way in the book of Ecclesiastes. I think that's what's so exciting about the book, is it's just not like any other book in the Bible. It, it, it challenges what the other books of the Bible say, and I think that's its strength. I think the strength is that it causes us to really stop and wrestle. What I want to draw out of 12 through 18 here is this. This is the next thing on your handout, is that worldly wisdom and knowledge do not satisfy the universal longing for something more. This is the author's experience. He sought worldly wisdom. He attained worldly wisdom. It didn't satisfy. He could not find the answers to all of this hevel, to all of this futility, to, to, to the unsatisfactory nature of things could not be found for him in worldly wisdom and knowledge. It wasn't as if somebody else could provide the answer to this for him. He sought out such wisdom. There was a, and, and it, it's not just him, there is this universal longing for something more. The frustration of trying to find satisfaction in worldly experiences, a universal frustration. It's something that all humanity has experienced across all time. Poets and philosophers in every age have written about this. In the 20th century, the, the great poet and philosopher Mick Jagger wrote, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> By his own account, he tried at least four times. He tried and he tried and he tried and he tried. He just couldn't get no satisfaction. It's a universal problem. And then the 19th century poet, a little bit before Mick Jagger's time, a true poet. Oh, Mick Jagger's a true poet. William Ernest Henley wrote these words. I love this poem. I don't even understand half of it. <laughs> he uses such, I mean, 
I, when we were in, in Mexico and everybody wants to know, do you speak Spanish? I'm like, I barely speak English, to be honest with you. I'm just trying to get by in that language. No, I don't speak Spanish. But listen to this. This is, I, I, I hope that this sticks with you. I, I love this. He says, the big teetotum twirls and epochs wax and wane. As chance subsides and swirls, but of the loss and gain, the sum is always plain. Read on the mighty pall the weed of funeral that covers praise and blame. The isms and the ananies, magnificence and shame, O oh vanity of vanities. The fates are subtle girls that give us chaff for grain. In time the thunder hurls like bolted death disdain. At all the heart and brain conceive or great or small upon this earthly ball. Would you be knight or dame or woo the sweet humanities or illustrate a name of vanity of vanities? We sound the sea for pearls or drown them in a drain. We flute it with the merls or tug and sweat and strain. We grovel and we rain. We saunter and we brawl. We search the stars for fame or sink her subterraneities. The legend's still the same. Oh, vanity of oh, vanities. Here at the wine one burls, there someone clanks a chain. The flag that this man furls, that man to float is fain. Pleasure gives place to pain. These in the kennel crawl while others take the wall. She has a glorious aim. He lives for the inanities. What come of every claim? Oh, vanity of oh, vanities. Alike are clods and earls for sot and seer and swain, for emperors and for churls, for antidote and bane. There is but one refrain, but one for king and thrall, for David and for Saul, for fleet of foot and lame, for pieties and profanities, the picture and the frame, vanity of vanities. Life is a smoke that curls, curls in a flickering skein. That winds and whisk and whirls, a figment thin and vain, into the vast inane. One end for hut and hall, one end for cell and stall. Burned in one common flame are wisdoms and insanities. For this alone we came, O vanity of vanities. The world is searching for answers to life's greatest and most difficult frustrations. We seek fame, we seek, we seek possessions, we, 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 we just grovel after whatever joy and satisfaction this world might give us and yet we just never find enough. And that's because this is the next thing on your handout. That's because... True meaning cannot be found in the places where most of us first look. You know, as I thought about that, you, you, might, you might want to, where it says true, I mean, right true, you already did, hopefully. You might want to put lasting. Maybe that's a better way of thinking of it. True or lasting, perhaps, meaning cannot be found in the places where most of us first look. That's what, that's something Ecclesiastes wants us to know. When I said there are, there are some just really important things about life here, some things, I'm not kidding you, as, I, as I've moved on from that workshop where I first began to study this book, there were, there were things that have stuck with me from this book, like no other book in the Bible, have just, I needed to know that. I needed to understand that. And I think this is one of them, that true meaning cannot be found in the places where most of us first look. You better figure that out in life because you'll waste your whole life looking in those same places and you'll get to the end and you'll have the misfortune of realizing it's just not there. Where do we first look? Well, we look, we look to our family we look to familial relationships. We look to possessions. Not all of these things are bad. Obviously, family is not bad. I'm not, I'm not saying any of these are bad. That's not the point of Ecclesiastes. It's not that he doesn't say human wisdom is bad. He just says it's, it's, it's hevel. 
It doesn't get us there. It doesn't produce what we're longing for. Family's not bad. Possessions aren't necessarily bad. But we look to these things for lasting meaning and it's just not there. Some of us strive for fame. Some of us just hope to be good at our jobs. And that's where we'll find satisfaction. Or we want success. We hope, we hope to have a pleasant retirement. We hope to get our kids into a good school. We, whatever it is, at the end of the day, true and lasting meaning cannot be found in these places where we first look. We'll hear throughout this book an argument. The earthly accomplishments and pleasure are so fleeting and unsatisfying that they are be t- t- considered heaven. Like smoke that cannot be fully grasped or held on to. All right, I got one more point that I need to make here. And I'm running out of time, so I'll try to make it quickly. Uh, and this is where we turn. If we just, if we just read through a clean, I don't want to end a sermon there. That's the, end of, that's the end of chapter 1, but I don't want to end a sermon there. This is where I'm going to strive to find a balance. I want you to feel Ecclesiastes. I want you to experience it. I want you to walk away. That's why I, I read that poem. I want that to be in your head. Oh, vanity of vanities. I, I want you to feel that. I want you to think about it throughout the week. That's the point and the purpose of Ecclesiastes, that we, we walk away wrestling with it. We walk away feeling like we don't yet have the answers. But I also want to lead us to the cross because the cross is where we find the answers. And so especially with this first week as we dig into Ecclesiastes, I want to, get, I want to take us to Jesus now. I want to pick up this problem of hevel. I want to pick up this problem of futility and of vanities. And I want to walk to the cross and say, Jesus, what do you say? Jesus, what do you want us to know? And so the last thing on your handout there says, our soul's search for meaning and purpose can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. The world doesn't have the answers. As important as it is, your family doesn't have the answer. Success at your job won't won't answer this for you, won't solve this for you, I should say. You You can't attain enough wealth to fix this problem. It's never going to be enough. Your family will let you down. The people around you can't solve the biggest problem that you have in life, which is your need for a savior. Our soul's search for meaning and purpose can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ. So let's look at some things that Jesus said. I just want to read John, it's it's 15 verses, John 6 53 through 68. That's probably 16 verses. Verse 53. I'm I'm just trying to decide how much context I need to give you here. Let me just read. So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna that your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. I'll pause there as I've answered my own question of how much context to give you. So Jesus is, he, this is, comes not long after he fed the, the crowd of 5,000 or so people. He fed them bread and, and fish. He did the miracle of multiplying the, the bread and the fish. And he feeds thousands of people. And the people are amazed. And they're so amazed and, and, and so excited about what this Jesus has to offer that they actually follow him when he doesn't want them to follow him. And so he turns to them, and this is what he says. He says, he's saying, look, you guys are coming to me because I gave you bread. Well, just, and, and one of the reasons was, was that was because they believed that he was sent from God at that time because it reminded them of when God gave them bread in the wilderness and when he fed them in the wilderness. And that's what he references back to. He says, your ancestors, they ate the manna, but they died. 
You came to me for more bread and fish, but that won't make you live. This is, this is very much like Ecclesiastes. He's wanting them to think about something much deeper, and he, uses, he, he speaks to them in very difficult terms to get them thinking. He's, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, what an odd, perplexing thing to say, but he has their attention. He has their attention. He says, you want more bread? You'll eat bread till the day you die, and you'll still die. But if you'll eat my body and drink my blood, you'll live forever. What is he saying? Well, we'll get to that in a minute. He's, and so it goes on in verse 59. He said these things while teaching them, while teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, This teaching is hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were complaining about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Well, of course it offended them. It was a, it was a very strange thing to say. Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. Much like in Ecclesiastes, we learn, you know, we just can't, we can't get there on our own. We can't figure this out. The world does not help us get there. We cannot find satisfaction for our souls. Jesus says something very similar here. The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and the one who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. From that moment, this is such an important moment in Jesus' ministry here on earth. From that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. He literally chased them away. He told them so, something so difficult that they couldn't bear to follow him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, those were his closest followers. He says, you don't want to go away too, do you? He's put them in a hard place. He's said and done some very difficult things. And he's set them up now. Now they've got to decide what they're going to do. You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. What I hope that Ecclesiastes will do for us is the same as what Jesus did for those 12 right there. It's my hope that Ecclesiastes will, will paint us into a corner. A corner that is nothing more than the reality of life, that nothing here on earth can possibly satisfy the eternal longing that we have in our souls. That there really just isn't enough, there isn't enough time, there isn't enough success, there aren't enough material possessions. There's just not enough here on earth for us. We have been created with this eternal longing for something more. And that we, like Peter, would say, where else are we going to go, Lord? Only you. Only you satisfy. Only you can take this life of heaven and give it meaning. Only you can satisfy an eternal longing that we have within us to be with you forever. Only you have the words of eternal life. That's my hope for this series, that we'll get to that place. So, I want you to pause and think this week. Look at how you spend your time. Look at what you have. Look at what you do. Look at, look at what your life consists of. And ask yourself, how much of this is going to matter in 50 years? How much of this is going to matter in 100 years? How much of this will, will even still exist? How much of this will even be remembered? And then turn to Jesus. And know that he is the one who makes life meaningful. That he is the one who gives purpose to every breath. 
that he is the creator and the sustainer of your days and that in him your soul can be satisfied, that in him your eternal longing can be met in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Worship team, would you prepare to start leading us in worship again? The rest of us, I'd like us to go ahead and close our eyes and, and let's go to prayer together as we think about the meaning of this passage together and what Jesus has to offer. Jesus, as we, as we wrestle with difficult realities, difficult words, as, we, as we're faced with the truth, that we want something more than this world has to offer. I feel a bit like you've painted us into a corner here. You give man life on this earth. And without telling us where, where to turn or where to look, we're, we're thrust into this world that doesn't seem to satisfy And men and women alike grovel, grasping at smoke, hoping that something will fill the longing in our hearts. Perhaps this next relationship, perhaps a different job, perhaps if I move somewhere else, what we just we grasp and we grovel and we, we want something to satisfy. And nothing ever does. And then Jesus comes. 2,000 years ago, light from heaven shone into this dark world and boldly proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for the last 2,000 years, everyone who has turned to Jesus has found those words to be true. You alone have the words of eternal life. You alone satisfy. You alone fill that void in our lives that nothing around us can. So we look to you. Where else are we going to go? We look to you. Jesus, come. Come and fill our hearts and fill our lives. Fill our minds with meaning. Give purpose to every breath we take, to every minute we live. Use us for your glory. And Jesus, if there's anybody in this room, either today or at any point in this series as we move forward, who does not know the satisfaction of having Jesus as their Savior, I pray that the message of the gospel would pierce their hearts and bring life to their dead souls. the fact that you came and died on that cross for our sins to give us eternal life, may that bring life to each and every one of us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.